0: Portland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Well, hi there. Don Wardlow here, your baseball lifer. Hopefully you had a good holiday season, and here we are at the beginning of 2024. Going to try something different in the opening of this program. After our first break, we'll have an encore presentation of an interview I did with author William R. Douglas, the author of the book The Death and Resurrection of Baseball. That'll be after the first break. But before that, I'm going to try something new as we open up the season of the new year of 2024. I'm going to try an announcer of the week piece, where every week it'll be a different announcer. Some of them will be members of the Baseball Hall of Fame. A few will be guys who are not in the hall, who I think should be in the hall. And others will be other baseball broadcasters you may or may not be familiar with. The first broadcaster of the week is one of the real pioneers of the game, and his name is Tom Manning. He started with the Cleveland Indians. He was, in fact, the first broadcaster the Indians ever put on the radio. That was in 1929. He was with them for three years, and he moved over to NBC, where he covered 10 World Series and the first eight All-Star Games from 1933 to 1940. Of course, he didn't have all the stats and all the information today's broadcasters have. He had an excited voice and an excitable personality, and he brought that to his microphone. And we're going to hear from the World Series of 1936. Game three, here's... Lou Gehrig up at the plate for the Yankees against the Giants pitcher Fred Fitzsimmons.
1: And the count strike two, ball two. Gehrig leading off, first man up on the last half of the second inning. Nobody has scored as yet. Here's the windup, two and two. There it goes, a long pass deep the center field, way up, going, going. There was nothing spooky about that one. As I said, going, going, going. It went high up over the sign out there, 407 feet away. And Lou Gehrig, smiling and trotting around the bag. He touched first. He touched second. He touched third at home plate and then dropped his cap to the thousands upon thousands of people here in the Yankee Stadium.
0: He may not have had the stats, but already after seven years behind the microphone, Tom Manning knew when to let the crowd say its peace and let the millions around the country hear the 70-odd thousand cheering at Yankee Stadium. Tom Manning, early World Series broadcaster, early Cleveland Indians broadcaster, was our announcer of the week for this week. When we come back, we'll have an encore presentation of an interview I did with author William R. Douglas, he'll talk about his book, The Death and Resurrection of Baseball. He's next on the Baseball Lifer podcast. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office
1: and fix them.
0: I think they are too busy with other bigger companies.
1: You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office.
0: Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's
1: wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone, At 732 356 8860. 732 356 8860. Cortland Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer Podcast
0: and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. On the Baseball Lifer Podcast with Don Wardlow, my guest is William R. Douglas. He's written a book, The Death and Resurrection of Baseball, Echoes from a Distant Past, and it's been published by Woodbridge Publications. And
2: William, thank you for joining me on the show. Don, I can't thank you enough. It's a high honor to be on your show. Uh, I love your history. Well, thank I, you, sir. You were a pioneer. Yes, sure. I, yes, I was. Absolutely. Now, the
0: book... The Death and Resurrection of Baseball, to write a book like this, it seems we would have to have, you'd have to begin with a love for baseball, then a concern for baseball, and then a means of reconstructing baseball. So sure. let's take it in, in piece by piece. Tell me about your love of baseball growing up.
2: Sure. Well, uh, born in 1959, so I just dated myself. I'm 63. Uh, came of age in the '60s. Uh, I think the uh, the fading glow of the golden era of baseball, I think, was still around. The baseball playoffs had not morphed into what it is today. And uh, I grew up in the in the era of uh, Bob Gibson and Early Banks, Bill Melton, Kirk Flood, and all those guys, uh, William McCovey. Back in the '60s, Willie Mays and and uh, Mickey Mantle was was still around, although his career was coming to an end. And uh, just fell in love with the game as a child and played a lot of sandlot ball with my my brother and, and our neighborhood buddies. Of course, uh, collected uh, gobs and gobs of tops, baseball cards, and enjoyed trading those and looking at them for hours on end. And uh, just really developed a a great love for the game as a child.
0: And the read I'm getting says White Sox and Cardinals, as opposed to being a Cubs fan. Because the the impression I've gotten is from Chicago, you're
2: one way or the other, you're a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan. Yeah, right. So a a funny story there. Uh, My brother and I had gotten our first couple packs of Tops uh, baseball cards. Uh, I don't know, we must have been... I don't know, six, seven years old, something like that. And, uh, uh, we were looking at them and, and then the question came up, well, who are we going to root for? And my brother, Scott, he said, you know, I'm going to root for the Cubs. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to root for the white Sox." <laughs> so that's how, that's how all that started. So there's been a, a friendly brotherly rivalry ever since that time. I remember when Bill Veck bought the white Sox. uh, uh, way back in the in the 70s. I know you've got a, a connection with one of his offspring. So that was that was pretty cool to read that in your in your story there. Yes, Bill's son Mike
0: was my boss for eight years of the 12 years I was in the minors. Yeah. Now we're men of an age. We came to adulthood and and we both have concerns for baseball and they go back my concern really began around 2010 my concern for what is going to happen in baseball's future and especially this past season with the almost strike that we had i sure. thought that i thought the strike if it happened would kill baseball in my own lifetime and i'm guessing the concerns that drew you to write this book the death and resurrection of baseball are from a similar kind of concern that I have and that I hear with people of my own age, the salaries and the corporate greed and uh-huh. things of that nature. What, what else concerned you and drove you to say, I'm going to write a book about not only baseball passing away, but baseball coming back?
2: Sure. So uh, I'll give you the detailed answer. So a couple things that went into the germination of the story. The first was uh, several years ago, reading an article about games that kids used to play before the Civil War of the 1860s. And those games are extinct, they're lost to history. No one plays them anymore. They don't even know the names of the games, or much less uh, know how to play them. Uh, and uh, also uh, two influential books that I read, uh, David Aikman's novel, When the Almond Tree Blossoms, which came out back in 1993, subsequently was updated in 2016. And then also back in uh, 2009, William Fortune's novel, uh, When the, uh, One Second After. Um, the first one, When the Almond Tree Blossoms is about a second civil war in America. And then uh, One Second After is about an EMP attack in America. So those are all important inputs uh, behind the storyline. But But the big question is, You know, how does baseball die? And when I see a couple of things, first of all, uh, I don't want to deceive your readers into thinking that I think baseball is going to die this year, next year, or or 10 years from now. But in my novel, uh, baseball dies uh, in the year 2061, which is 40 years from now. So this is what I see happening that's concerning. Number one, uh, at the youth level, Participation in baseball continues uh, a general uh, downward uh, trend, and there's there's two main things that are contributing to that um, that I see. One is the the continual shrinkage of what's called uh, the house leagues or the city leagues, which was you know the, the the baseball leagues that you and I grew up with playing little league and learning the game. Those continue to shrink in numbers. Some of the leagues, uh, well, I shouldn't say some, a lot of leagues have disappeared altogether. Uh, and the town where I live is a, a, a town of McHenry, northwest of Chicago by about an hour. Uh, when my son was playing Little League back in the, the late 90s, early 2Ks, there were three leagues in town, and two of them have now disappeared. And the one that survives is not even half the size it was when my son was playing. Uh, the other thing is the, the, the growth in travel ball. Now travel ball is in my opinion, uh, while it's good for the kids that make the team, uh, it is contributing to the downward decline in the popular, the sport with youth because what happens with travel ball, you've got a couple things going on. Number one, you have to try out for the team. And so it's only the cream of the crop that's making the team. And so the rest of the kids, uh, they have fewer options after that. I mean, if there's, if there's no house league in town, then they really have no outlet with which to uh, learn the sport of baseball. Uh, the other thing is the cost of travel ball, which... By its very nature, is expensive because you have uh, hotel costs and gasoline and food and lodging, everything else, and uh, uh, uniform costs and everything that goes with travel ball. Um, and so, because of that, you're automatically eliminating uh, lower middle income to lower income families from from being able to sign up their child for for baseball. And so. Um, you take all that together and then you take the disenfranchisement that adults feel that many adults feel towards the game because of, you know, they're, they're, they're upset about the amount of money that's being spent or being made. Uh, There's a whole issue of gambling and what's going on with that issue with, with the sport. Um, And you mix all that together. And I think it's a recipe for down the road Uh, that you could actually see uh, the disappearance of the sport. Um, One thing I like to point out too is that when you have a diminishing pool of youngsters uh, being introduced to the game, well, those youngsters, uh, if they become interested in other things like soccer or lacrosse or or video games or whatever, uh, they grow up to adults that are not fans of baseball. And so eventually you have a diminishing pool of fans at the adult level. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow
0: here. My guest is William R. Douglas. The book is The Death and Resurrection of Baseball, Echoes from a Distant Past. Admittedly, I've only gotten to read part of the book. But what I have read, I feel it reflects an ultimate optimism that even if baseball managed to become extinct, that it could live again. And that's not an, not an optimism I hear in a lot of voices. You're a voice in the wilderness and a refreshing one. How did you come up with the premise of showing this optimistic future for a game that could end its existence in our lifetime, we're in that of our generations.
2: Sure, yeah, excellent question, Don. So, uh, all the ingredients that went into the book so, you know, the the articles about the first Civil War games, just uh, becoming extinct, and the and the two books I referenced, and then uh, all of the uh, concerns I have that, that you share uh, for the long-term viability of the sport—they all—they all came together into basically two or two or three what-ifs. What if baseball were to die? How would it die? Uh, And what if there was a second American Civil War? So in the book, the second Civil War begins uh, in the year 2061. And it basically acts as a proverbial nail in the coffin for the sport of baseball. Uh, uh, The sport's been dying uh, at that time for several years prior. Uh, there's a three-year strike at the professional level that really turns off huge numbers of fans. In the in the last year uh, before the war starts, I mean, baseball is literally on its last breath, and then it, and then it dies when the war starts. So the premise of the story is that a uh, hundred years after the <clears throat> after the war has ended, a twelve-year-old boy by the name of Joyce Joe Scott goes exploring in the woods one day. And uh, finds a relic that winds up having a connection with the game of baseball. But at the time that he finds it, he doesn't realize this, but it, it comes out later. And so this uh, this relic that he finds uh, <clears throat> really begins an adventure for him and uh, his buddies. And they wind up, uh, or he winds up becoming the focal point at the rediscovery of the sport. And reintroducing it or attempting to at least uh to America. And in the meantime, you know, baseball uh for many people has always been a metaphor for America itself. And so the rediscovery of this sport, uh, by Joe uh Scott and, and his attempting to bring it back uh has a lot of uh has a lot of symbolism or America itself at the time in, in the story, which is still recovering from the war. There have been other
0: books positing a second American Civil War and being quite graphically detailed about it, but you are optimistic with the boys being able to explore and taking, taking that risk and you know having adolescent fun rediscovering
2: this great game. Yeah, so a couple things there. Um, I intentionally wanted to make this primarily a baseball story, uh, a kind of a combination of, of Sandlot and uh, coming of age, and a little bit of the feel of dreams in there. Uh, it's it just a, a joy to read. Um, I wanted to remind the readers of their childhood days, especially if they if they played ball when they were younger. Um, But the Civil War is is there not as an active event in the storyline because it's 100 years in the past uh, for the characters in the story. But it's in there uh, kind of uh, intentionally to uh, get the reader to think about where we're at currently as a country, especially with all the divisions that we have. And to really get the reader to think uh, you know very, very soberly upon the subject and and hopefully foster conversation amongst one another about how uh, how we can learn to agree to disagree, how we should you know take a step back from the rhetoric that you hear everywhere in the country these days. And uh, and do all that we can individually and 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 as united citizens to make sure that this second civil war is is, is portrayed in the novel never actually takes place. So, uh, but again, uh, primarily the the stories about baseball and is meant to be entertaining, but there is that serious uh, threat of an undercurrent in there uh that hopefully uh, is instructive for the readers.
0: As much of the book as I've read seems to be written at a level which teenagers could appreciate. Would you suggest this as a book for
2: teenage reading or are a- you more absolutely. aiming? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's designed to be uh, for uh, 12 and up uh, readers. Um, it's, it's all age levels, really. Uh, I think even younger kids than 12 would would enjoy the read. It's a good clean book. Uh, there's only one cuss word in the whole in the whole book, and when it occurs, uh, one of the characters uh, chastises the person that utters the word. So <laughs> it's a good uh, good clean read. Um, one thing I also wanted to put in there uh, has been the uh, been kind of a family dynamics or reset that comes out uh, in the novel as you, as you get deeper into it. I think you'll see that then. But uh, uh, one important aspect that I purposely put in there was uh, the importance of, of the family dinner and how that's kind of become a lost thing in America. And in the book, uh, the family dinner is very important where on a nightly basis, there's an, there's an hour that's carved out every night and, and people gather around supper table and they break bread and share each other's, uh, uh, uh tales of, 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 uh, and the days uh, triumphs and tra- tragedies and, and in the mundane as well. And uh, it's that time at dinner table that I think, uh, uh, at least in my own childhood was very important and, uh, foundational towards uh, a good and happy childhood. It can be again. Uh, I think if if Americans would uh, put a stake in the ground, and say, you know what, we're not gonna we're not gonna do dinner by by frozen meals or fast food lines every day. We're gonna have to figure out a way to carve out the time and gather as family, and, and again share in one another's days, how how things went, and be there to encourage one another and lift each other
0: up. I agree with that. I'd love to see that come back again. Last question for William R. Douglas, the author of The Death and Resurrection of Baseball Echoes from a Distant Past. When you got the idea in your head that the book should be written, what was the process from writing the book to having it on the shelves
2: or on Amazon? Yeah, sure. Good uh, good question. Um you know, I've always enjoyed writing throughout my life. I've I've been involved in the IT field for 30 plus years and had the, the pleasure of writing documentation and web web page copy, et cetera, et cetera. I've done newsletters and all kinds of things. And uh, it was always on my list to write a book. So uh, all these elements that we spoke of earlier in the podcast came together uh, in 2016. And uh, I said, you know what, I'm just, it's time to sit down and and, and and write my first book. So I sat down in September, started writing uh, in September of 2016, and finished in uh, September of 2020. Um, there were fits and starts uh, along the way, of course, a couple of writer's blocks. Uh, I remember one significant writer's block came along, and I actually drove out to Dyersville, Iowa, and uh, spent about six hours uh, uh, pitching and throwing and hitting at the Field of Dreams. And then when I was done, uh, I felt re-inspired. I I had my laptop with, I sat down in the bleachers at the Field of Dreams and was pounding out all of chapter six and a portion of chapter seven. So um, I had help along the way. I I assembled a team of uh, beta readers and editors and then eventually uh, I went out on Upwork.com uh, and hired a professional editor as well as a professional book formatter to uh, get the book formatted and ready for publication. So help along the way. But uh, I think uh, the big advice would be is that if if you want or have a mind to sit down and write a book is to just go ahead and start and then uh, you know have a, a small inner circle of, Of uh, friends and family or professional colleagues that can help you along the way uh, by offering uh, critiques and advice, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Our guest has
2: been William R. Douglas, the
0: author of The Death and Resurrection of Baseball Echoes from a Distant Past. It was published by Woodbridge Publications and it was released in April of this year. You can find it in your store or on the internet. Mr. Douglas, I sure thank you for joining us on the
1: Baseball Lifer podcast. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met. Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with Security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the Internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at CortlandComputerServices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732 356 courtlandcomputerservices.com Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball
0: Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast after an encore... try it again. Three, two, one. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast after an encore presentation of my interview with William R. Douglas, the author of The Death and Resurrection of Baseball. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Baseball Lifer podcast, another Broadcaster of the Week feature. If you've got any suggestions for that Broadcaster of the Week, you can contact me at... This email address, Don at the baseballlifer.com. So that's my first name, Don at the baseballlifer.com. Until we get together again next week, this is Don Wardlow on the Baseball Lifer Podcast. <laughs>